Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, well, today I'm going to summarize some of the emails that I get. I get a lot of emails, and there's no way I can address all of them. So I'd like to say a few things about some of the big topics that I get. Well, the number one topic that I've been getting for the past several weeks, in fact, is the question of, well, flying saucers, UFOs, UAPs. What are they in light of the fact that the military has unleashed a mountain of previously classified documents and videotapes? Do they confirm or disprove some conjectures about what are these things flying around in the air? And then I'll say a few things about the future of the space program, specifically space tourism. Is it really a plaything for billionaires, a total waste of time, an ego trip for billionaires? Well, yes. But is there some scientific value to what's happening given the fact that the price of space travel is dropping like a rock? So we'll talk about what it means if one day we democratize outer space. But anyway, let's say a few things about some of the emails that I get. A lot of emails I get are from people who see things in the sky. They say, look, over there in the sky, look, Martha, I see something. Well, maybe you did, and maybe you didn't. But you see, I'm a scientist, and scientists deal with things that are testable, reproducible, and falsifiable. If you see something, well, yeah, maybe you did see a flying saucer. Maybe you did see an extraterrestrial vehicle. But maybe you didn't. It's not scientifically valid from a scientific point of view. Maybe it was a meteor. Maybe it was the planet Venus. It could have been any number of things that you saw. Or maybe it was a weather balloon or a weather anomaly. It could have been any number of things. But you see, science is not just based on observation. Science is based on things that are testable, reproducible, and falsifiable. We want the smoking gun, if possible. Well, some people are saying, what about this mountain of documents being released by the United States Pentagon, where we have seasoned Navy pilots stating that, yes, they saw something and they tracked it with radar, infrared sensors, and photographs. What does that mean? Well, the burden of proof used to be on the believers that these flying saucers were real. But now the debate has shifted. Given this mountain of documents, the burden of proof is now shifted so that the military and the government has to disprove that these things don't come from another planet far away. So take, let's take a look at some of the data. First of all, we physicists have been able to have a field day going frame by frame, analyzing what these videotapes reveal. And this is what we find. We find that, yes, a lot of them can be dismissed as weather anomalies, weather balloons, optical illusions. But there's over a 100 of them that really make your head shake. 
that really defy the known laws of physics, or at least physics as we know them. First of all, how fast do these objects fly? Now we know. They can fly between Mach 5 and Mach 20, 20 times the speed of sound. We can clock this now. It's just not a matter of hearsay. Now, these objects can also zigzag. And when they zigzag, we can calculate the centrifugal force generated inside these objects. The centrifugal force is measured in g-factors. 1g is the force of gravity, or 9.8 meters per second squared. The g-forces inside these objects when they zigzag is hundreds of times the force of the Earth's gravity. In other words, it's bone-crushing force that you experience when these objects zigzag in midair. So, perhaps they're not organic. Maybe whatever's inside them could be, could be uh, cybernetic. We don't know for sure. Plus, these objects do not have a sonic boom. These objects can descend 80,000 feet within a matter of a second. That is astonishing. 80,000 feet drop in a matter of just a second or so. And they can also go underwater. They don't necessarily stop at the water surface. Apparently, they can go underwater. And so let's add it all up together. What does this mean if an object can go between Mach 5 and Mach 20? Can zigzag with g-forces measured in the hundreds of times the force of gravity? Descend 80,000 feet within a matter of a second? Fly underwater? What does that mean? Well, the military finally owned up to it. The military has stated, quote, they're not one of ours. Now, this is a very important admission, because before, the military was very coy about this. The military could say, well, you know, we have Area 51, or maybe we don't have Area 51, and maybe there's a place where we have to test these things. Maybe it's a stealth bomber-like airplane. Well, the military has pretty much owned up to the fact that, no, they're not stealth bombers. In fact, they are beyond the capabilities of anything in our arsenal. Now, what is the closest thing that we have to these things? They are hypersonic drones. Yes, they can travel up to Mach 20. In fact, Vladimir Putin even publicly acknowledged the fact that they have an operational hypersonic drone system that can zigzag and maneuver. And why do they zigzag? Because they're designed to evade a Star Wars shield. You see, the United States has invested billions of dollars for a radar system that can lock onto a missile and shoot it from the sky. Therefore, the Russians have invested their billions of dollars creating a missile which can maneuver in space and evade the ground-based radar of a Star Wars system. And Vladimir Putin says, yes, they can travel up to Mach 20. But can they zigzag with hundreds of forces of Gs? Can they fly underwater? Can they maneuver without creating a sonic boom? The answer is probably no. So the military has stated in its conclusion that perhaps they're Chinese, perhaps they're Russian, or other. Other, of course, is left blank as to what other means. Another nation state of some sort? A, ge a mad genius someplace? Or 
perhaps an extraterrestrial. We don't know. Now, what's different between this and before? Yes, we had sightings before, but the gold standard, the gold standard in all of this is multiple sightings by multiple modes. In other words, not just one person saying, hey, Martha, I see something up there. No, not that. We're talking about several seasoned pilots, let's say, seeing the same object, tracking it with multiple means. For example, radar, visual sensors, infrared sensors, binoculars, whatever, independent verification of what you're looking at. So in the past, we've had incidences like this. For example, back in the 1980s, there was a famous JAL sighting. Japan Airlines was flying one of its uh, aircraft over Alaska and encountered not one, not two, but three, three UFOs. They were sighted by the pilots. They were sighted by ground radar. They were sighted visually, optically. So again, multiple sightings by multiple modes are the hardest to dismiss. But there's a sad ending to the story. Because of all the publicity given to the JAL incident, the pilots were demoted. They were given desk jobs. So a lesson came out of that. And the lesson is, you report these things and it reflects badly on your boss, you can get demoted. You can get fired. And it put a damper on many other sightings because of the fact that people, well, they don't want to get in trouble if they're known to be some kind of crackpot seeing something in, in the sky. That's very bad. So what's coming out of this is the fact that the military is now giving authorization to its pilots to acknowledge these things, to videotape these things. And I think that's a plus because, well, I'm a physicist. We physicists love data. We live and die by data. The more data, the better. And that's why we need this kind of information. Now, what's the, what's the criticism of some of these Navy tapes? Well, some people are saying that they could be an optical illusion. So let me back up a bit. If you have your fingertip, let's say, whiz across your face, it doesn't, your fingertip doesn't travel very fast, but your fingertip is very close to your eyes as your fingertip whizzes across from left to right. Now, let's say that you see an object hundreds of miles away, zipping across your field of vision in exactly the same way as your fingertip. Well, that object could be going thousands of miles per hour if it were real, but it's not because your fingertip can whiz across your field of vision giving the illusion that it could be far away, far away, traveling at thousands of miles per hour across your field of vision. This is the parallax paradox, the fact that an object close to you, which is moving slowly, can mimic an object far away from you that doesn't exist, moving at extremely fast velocities. So some people are saying that that could cause these sightings up to Mach 20. Well, how do you get around that? Once again, independent multiple modes. By tracking them with radar, infrared sensors, 
cameras, optically, many different ways to show that it's not simply the parallax postulate. So there are many ways in which we can tell whether or not it's an optical illusion or the real thing. Now, what about those people that claim they've been kidnapped and put in one of these flying saucers against their will? And forbidden experiments have been done on their bodies. Well, there are several theories about this. One theory is that, well, maybe it's true. Maybe the aliens do want to experiment on us. But there's also another point of view, and that is that roughly 5% of the human race suffers from something called sleep paralysis. You see, when you dream at night, you are paralyzed. The body shuts down your muscles because if you were to act out your dreams, you could hurt people. You could hurt yourself. So we're automatically paralyzed when we dream. But about 5% of people have a problem that when they wake up, they're still paralyzed. Usually you are up and at them when you wake up. But these people are still paralyzed and when you interview them, they feel that there's an animal, an animal sitting on their chest, staring down on them. And then they wake up and then they go about their business and forget about it. Well, I ask my astronomy class sometimes, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you ever had an episode of sleep paralysis, that you wake up in the morning, you feel paralyzed, and there's an animal staring at you, sitting on your chest. And believe it or not, about 5% of the class raises their hand. So some people think that that could be the basis for alien abductions, that under hypnosis, the brain gets confused and thinks that this animal sitting on your chest is really an alien doing experiments on you. Now, during the Victorian era, there are paintings, paintings done during the Victorian era of women with gremlins sitting on their chest, staring down on them. And so this is not a new phenomenon at all. It's been around for a while. So what are these sightings of people being kidnapped? Well, my suggestion is the following. The next time you are kidnapped by a flying saucer, for God's sake, steal something. That's right, steal something. There's no law against stealing from an extraterrestrial civilization. No law whatsoever. And maybe you'll steal an alien chip, an alien hammer, alien technology, and that could end the debate right then and there. End of story. That's it, folks. We now prove that this alien technology does, in fact, exist. Now, when I talk to my friends about these things, they just sort of shake their head and their eyes glaze over. They sort of like roll their eyes into the heavens. And you get the giggle factor. The giggle factor because they say that the distance between stars is so great. It would take literally thousands, thousands of years to go between the planets. And therefore, it's all a bunch of baloney. Well, yes and no. First of all, if you assume that the aliens are only 100 years more advanced than us, then you're right. A technology just 100 years more advanced than us cannot go between the stars, at least in a reasonable amount of time. The Saturn rocket, traveling at 25,000 miles per hour, would take about 70,000 years 
to reach Alpha Centauri, the nearest star. That's prohibitive, 70,000 years, just to reach the nearby star, the nearest star. So you would have to have superliminal velocities, that is, break the light barrier. But even in school, they teach you that Einstein is the cop on the block. Einstein says you cannot go faster than the speed of light. So that seems to end the debate right there, right? Wrong. You see, Einstein had a loophole. In 1935, he discovered a loophole in his own equations. That is, if you take a black hole and you stick two black holes together, you get a funnel, a gateway, a gateway between two universes called the wormhole. And under certain circumstances, if you go through the wormhole, you can break the light barrier. Now, what kind of technology could do this? You're talking about a technology thousands, maybe a million years more advanced than us. But look, the universe is 13.8 billion years old or so. So what's, what's a million years over a 13 billion lifespan? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Now, let's be clear about this. We cannot manipulate stars. We cannot manipulate black holes. But that's the energy necessary to break the light barrier. Think of Alice in Wonderland. The looking glass of Alice is the wormhole. The gateway connecting the countryside of Oxford to Wonderland. Now, the technology necessary to do that would be what is called type 3. We physicists rank these civilizations, believe it or not. A type 1 civilization is planetary. They can harness planetary power. They control the weather, for example. A type 2 civilization controls their entire sun. They get their energy directly from the sun. And that's type 2, which is sort of like the Federation of Planets in Star Trek. Then there's type 3, galactic. They can roam across the galactic space lanes, breaking the light barrier. That's type 3. Now, growing at a rate of 3% a year, you can calculate, ballpark calculation, that by the year 2100, we will become planetary, type 1. In a thousand or so years, we'll become type 2. But to become type 3... You would have to be maybe 100,000 to a million years more advanced than us. But hey, that's almost nothing compared to the age of the universe. Then there are people who say, let's spend money listening in on conversations between alien civilizations. This is the SETI project, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I'm all in favor of that. In fact, on exploration, we've had the director of the SETI project on the air. However, there's also the METI project, which I disagree with. The METI project wants to reach out, reach out and advertise our existence to alien life in outer space. I think that's a very bad idea. You see, in ancient history, Montezuma, the king of the Aztecs, made perhaps the greatest mistake in all of ancient history. Montezuma assumed that Cortez was a god. Nope, Cortez was not a god. Cortez, we now know, was a bloodthirsty pirate. But 
Cortez had things that the Aztecs didn't have. He had gunpowder. The Aztecs just had bows and arrows. Cortez had the horse. No, Aztecs had no horses. Cortez had steel, steel weapons that could shatter bronze. The Aztecs were a Bronze Age civilization. Cortez had the written language. The Aztecs had a pictorial language, not a written language. And so for all these reasons, the Aztecs were up against a formidable enemy, including smallpox, and the Aztec Empire disintegrated within a matter of months. So I think until we know the intentions of a civilization in outer space, it's bad news to advertise our existence. I think we should just keep it cool and be silent, not broadcast our existence to aliens in outer space, but simply wait and see. First of all, if we encounter a civilization in outer space, we'll eavesdrop on their conversations we'll be able to find out how advanced they are, what their intentions are, and if they can reach us or not and visit us. That's very important. Now, then the other question is, what do the aliens want? Are they going to land on the White House lawn and say, here we are, folks. We're going to give you an age of Aquarius. We're going to give you all the benefits of our technology. But let's be real. If you go down a country road and see a bunch of ants, do you go down to the ants and say, I bring you trinkets, I bring you beads, I give you nuclear energy, I give you an ant paradise, take me to your queen. Is that what you say to a bunch of ants? Or maybe you have this politically incorrect urge to step on a few of those ants. Well, the people of the Medi Project say, yeah, that's a danger, but maybe the aliens are actually benevolent zookeepers. That's what one of them told me when I was being interviewed by the New York Times. Benevolent zookeepers. In other words, we're like squirrels and deer in a game park, and the game warden simply, you know, watches us, makes sure that everything's okay, and treats us like zoo animals. Well, maybe, maybe not. But if you went to Las Vegas and you were to put money on the table as to betting whether or not the aliens are benevolent zookeepers or not, I think you would get a pretty negative response. Because look at science fiction. Of course, it is fiction. But in War of the Worlds, the aliens did not hate us. The aliens weren't evil. The aliens weren't malicious and they didn't want to torture us. No, we were just in the way. We habited, inhabited a lush planet with life. The Martians were on a planet that was dying in War of the Worlds. They needed a new home and we were just in the way. And they wanted to terraform the Earth or Marsiform the Earth and make the Earth into Mars. Well, that's a possibility. Another possibility is in Star Trek, where we have the Borg. The Borg is a type 3 civilization, galactic, roaming the galactic space lanes. And what do they want? Your mind. They collect the minds of the people they conquer and make them into cyber slaves. 
That's the Borg, a Type 3 civilization. And then there's Independence Day. Independence Day, what did the aliens want? Energy, resources, everything. They were like locusts. Locusts swarming by the billions and billions, just sucking up, sucking up every shred of resource, energy, and power they encounter. And they strip planets clean of any of their resources. Well, I'll be blunt. I don't know what the aliens want. And I don't, for the most part, think it's a good idea to communicate with them until we find out what their intentions are. Then perhaps we can reach out. But in the short term, I think we just should sit tight and listen to their conversations. Another possibility, however, is that maybe when we bump into flying saucer people, they will in fact be avatars. In other words, maybe they'll be cybernetic, robotic, part organic. They may look totally different from anything that we can even imagine. Because look at us. We are digitizing ourselves over the decades. Everything known about you can be digitized to create a carbon copy of who you are. All your digital efforts, photographs, emails, credit card transactions, everything can give a digitized copy of yourself, which can be put on a laser beam and then shot into outer space at the speed of light. That, by the way, is the most efficient way to colonize the galaxy, to shoot laser beams containing the information necessary to reconstruct you, all your personality traits on a laser beam, shot throughout the universe at the speed of light. On the moon, for example, there could be a mainframe that then downloads, downloads your digital consciousness, puts it into an avatar, and you become... Superman and Superwoman, super beautiful, handsome, able to romp on the sands of Mars or the, or the, the, the mountains of the moon, becoming immortal, digital immortality. Well, this, of course, is not for us, but technology marches on. And some people believe that one day we may be digitally immortal. In summary, my personal point of view is that it cannot be dismissed. That is, these unidentified aerial phenomena, they could be extraterrestrial. I'm not saying they are. Who knows? Maybe they're an optical illusion of some sort. But so far, analyzing these videotapes frame by frame, it cannot be ruled out anymore, the fact that they could be evidence of alien visitation. Who knows? And lastly, I should point out that both the physicist Stephen Hawking and the astronomer Carl Sagan were asked the question, do you believe in extraterrestrial life? And they both said more or less the same thing. And that is, you can't rule it out. Given the fact that there are just so many planets, we think, in the galaxy, and given the fact that we pretty much know the biochemistry that gave rise to humanity, then the question is, why can't it be duplicated? Why can't it be duplicated throughout the universe? And so they didn't say yes, they didn't say no. They just said it's possible within the laws of science that we are not 
the only ones in the universe. So maybe we should get off our high horse, thinking that we are the pinnacle of evolution. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Stay tuned now for the second part when we talk to one of the directors of the SETI project, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence in outer space. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for Exploration. Stay tuned as we explore intelligent life in the universe. to exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. If you want to know more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. Go to my Facebook site. We have five million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Is it possible that we can find an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that will allow us to, quote, read the mind of God? These are the words of Albert Einstein, who set off on this quest to unify all the laws of physics into a single equation. Find out more about this by getting a copy of my book, The God Equation. Our special guest in the second half of exploration is Dr. Seth Shostak. He's with the SETI Project, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Now realize that we've analyzed over 4,000 planets orbiting other stars, and we have a census of the Milky Way galaxy now. On average, we know that every star in the heavens has a planet going around it. On average, every single star has a planet going around it. And maybe 20% of them have Earth-like planets going around them. So the probability that there could be other life in the galaxy is overwhelming. Now, it's not perfect, of course, but the best estimates are that it's overwhelming, that there could be life throughout the galaxy, maybe even intelligent life. And since the galaxy is 10 billion years old, since the universe is 13.8 billion years old, there's plenty of time for advanced civilizations to rise and perhaps fall. And that's why the SETI project is here, to try to listen in on these conversations. Listen in to find out what's out there in outer space. So once again, our special guest today is a physicist, Dr. Seth Shostak of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence.
Now, Dr. Shostak, you spent your whole life looking for alien civilizations in outer space. But let's face it, the universe is huge. So how do you find the aliens in such a gigantic universe? The universe is so big. And just in our own neighborhood, we have discovered 4,000, 4,000 planets going around stars next to us in our quadrant of the Milky Way galaxy. And so the first question for you, Dr. Shostak, is how do you find the aliens? Well, that's actually a good point because, of course, you know, the aliens haven't sent us a fax telling us where on the dial they might be broadcasting. So you have to sort of second guess what, what frequencies, what part of the dial makes sense. And uh, that idea had already been explored, even though Frank Drake didn't know that, by a couple of guys who at that point were at Cornell University, a couple of physicists by, by the name of uh, Giacconi and, uh, sorry, Cocconi, Giuseppe Cocconi and uh, Philip Morrison. Anyhow, these two guys had already thought about what frequencies make sense if you're going to send messages between the stars. And they said, well, look, there's kind of a natural uh, answer to that because there's one frequency everybody will know. And it turns out to be 1420 megahertz on the dial. You might think, well, what's special about that? It turns out that hydrogen, which is by far the, the overwhelmingly most common element in the, uh, in the universe, hydrogen naturally emits some radio emission at 1420 megahertz. So all astronomers, you know, of any sophistication in the universe will know about this frequency. So they said, look, that's a natural frequency. Everybody will have it marked on their radio dial. Let's try listening there. Frank Drake came to the same conclusion rather independently. And so the first experiments were done usually with a, with a receiver that only had one channel. It could only listen to one channel at a time, just like your auto radio, um, and, and, and set that frequency somewhere near this 1420 megahertz magic frequency on the dial. Now, as time went on, this kind of experiment became much more sophisticated. Today, uh, the receivers that are used for SETI listen simultaneously to tens of millions of channels at once because, you know, you don't know exactly which, which frequency might be the one they're using, but they tend to look at still at that part of the dial around 14, 20 megahertz. Not always. Sometimes they'll do experiments where they're looking elsewhere, but usually you're covering uh, maybe 1,000 or 2,000 megahertz around that frequency. So, you know, it's a small fraction of the dial, but it seems to be a pretty good one. No, one, no one's ever come up with a better argument about where to tune. Okay, now let's talk about Drake's equation, which is taught in every elementary astronomy course as scientists try to get a reasonable scientific estimate of the probability of intelligent races throughout the, the galaxy. So tell us a little bit about uh, Drake's equation. Well, the equation actually has an interesting history, or at least semi-interesting. <laughs> Frank Drake had done that first listening experiment in the spring of 1960. So, gosh, that's 45 years ago. It was in April, I think, 1960. Anyhow, so th that generated a lot of interest. I mean, he didn't find the aliens, but it generated a heck of a lot of interest. And so the next year, he had a meeting, also in West Virginia, at the observatory, uh, in which he invited all the kind of professional scientists who who were interested in this work. That, that, that total was like 10 or 12 or something. It was mm -hmm. a fairly small number. And as an agenda, he was, you know, he's sitting around thinking, well, this meeting's come up, coming up in a couple of weeks. I need an agenda. So as an agenda for this meeting, he wrote down this very simple equation, which has subsequently become known as the Drake equation. And all it does is try to estimate something called N, where N is the number of uh, number of civilizations in our galaxy? Just let's confine ourselves to our galaxy. 
that are broadcasting right now. The, the, the number of, of star systems, if you will, that are producing signals now that we could detect. Now, clearly, that depends on, well, how many stars are there in the galaxy and what fraction of those have planets and what fraction of those planets have produced life and what fraction of those that have produced life have produced intelligent life and what fraction of those have produced technology and what fraction of those. Those are actually on the air right now. Okay, so it's a whole string of terms. There are actually seven terms in the equation. You can find it in almost any textbook on, uh, on astronomy. And that's the Drake equation. And it, it would be great because it would tell you, you know, what are your chances of success? I mean, if N is only a few, then the chances that you'll find these guys is pretty small. But if N are thousands or millions or some very large number, uh, Carl Sagan thought that the value of N was several million. Well, if that's true, then, you know, you have a pretty good chance of tripping across the signal sooner or later. So, unfortunately, of course, we don't know what N is. There are a bunch of terms in the equation that we simply don't know. So it's more of a, a talking point kind of thing than it is an equation that you can actually solve or use. Other scientists say, bah humbug. Uh, we had uh, Professor Brownlee on our airwaves um, about a year and a half ago, and he said that Drake's equation is flawed. Flawed because there are new astronomical bits of information that show that, well, uh, to get life is more difficult than we thought. Uh, he mentions, for example, that you need a large moon. Uh, without a large moon, the Earth would eventually tumble in its orbit and uh, over mil- hundreds of millions of years, and that would make DNA impossible. Uh, he also mentioned the fact that at one point the entire Earth was frozen over. We were snowball Earth. And again, DNA would be very hard to get off the ground under those circumstances. Uh, he mentions you have to have a large Jupiter in order to clean out the debris of the solar system. He also mentions you have to be a certain distance from the center of the black hole at the center of the galaxy. Otherwise, you get fried by being too close to this very radioactive core at the center of the galaxy. But if you're too far out, uh, then there are not enough heavy elements uh, to create uh, DNA and uh, higher molecules. So, well, what are your thoughts? Is the Earth in some sense unique, as uh, Professor Brownlee was hinting at? Or do you think uh, N is quite large, as Carl Sagan believed? Well, of course, nobody knows. So everything I'm going to tell you is my opinion on this, okay. obviously. Good enough. If we, if we knew the answer, we wouldn't be discussing it. But um, it's true. Don Brownlee and uh, his colleague Peter Ward at the University of Washington up in Seattle wrote this book about five years ago called Rare Earth, in which they had indeed, as you indicated, kind of a laundry list of uh, you know reasons why Earth might not be just a run-of-the-mill planet. Earth might be very, very special, so special that, in fact, Although there might be some other life out there, it's not going to be very sophisticated life. It isn't going to be intelligent life. And so our SETI experiments are kind of a waste of time. That, that was their thesis. And since this was reviewed, by the way, in the New York Times, uh, this book got a lot of play. And, uh, but if you actually look at this laundry list, you find that the items on it are not terribly convincing. Uh, but let, let's take a couple of the ones you named, for example. The fact that the Earth has a large moon, which kind of stabilizes the spin of the Earth. Okay. Now, if we didn't have that large moon, and by the way, a large moon is kind of a rare thing. You, you know, Mercury doesn't have a large moon, has no moons. Venus doesn't have a large moon, has no moons. Mars has a couple of moons. You could walk around in an afternoon, tiny moons, they don't help. Earth, on the other hand, among the rocky planets, is the only one to have a, have a large moon. Okay. And sure, it does stabilize the Earth's spin. But if you took that moon away, uh, yes, well, the Earth wouldn't, you know, just go completely nuts. Every now and again, the North Pole would come down to, you know, Connecticut or some other place, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But it would take hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years to do that, right? 
So it's such a slow event that even you know, for even for complicated life like freshwater otters or whatever, right? They, they can just walk away from that problem. If you've got a hundred thousand years, you know, before the North Pole gets to you, you have plenty of time to move. I mean, that isn't fatal to life. That's not fatal. It might be an inconvenience, you know, if you had a society with a lot of cities, you might not want it to happen. But it's so slow, it's not fatal. Now, uh, here's another another thing in your list. There, you mentioned we're fortunate to have Jupiter because Jupiter has cleaned out the inner solar system of all these big rocks that otherwise might, you know, slam into your planet and ruin the whole day just the way it happened 65 million years ago, taking out the dinosaurs and 75% of all other species. Well, sure. Uh, but on the other hand, big Jupiters are not rare. We know that. In fact, all the planets we've found around other stars are like Jupiter are bigger. Right? So big planets are not rare. But even, even aside from that, you could argue that maybe life on Earth would have gotten a little bit farther had we not had such a big planet as Jupiter out there, because, in fact, you know, if the dinos had been wiped out 50 million years earlier, we would be 50 million years ahead of where we are today. We'd have the cure for death, whatever, you know. It would be, maybe we'd be better off. So I don't find that a very convincing argument. I mean, you, you can look at each one of these arguments. Uh, the snowball Earth, yes, there's some evidence, although it's, it's somewhat controversial, but there's some evidence that there was a time a few billion years ago when the entire Earth was encrusted with ice. But there was life on Earth then. And that life wasn't wiped out by snowball Earth. It just, you know, had to sit there and, you know, live at the bottom of the oceans for a while. But, you know, a lot of life, well, all life was down in the oceans anyhow. So, you know, it didn't wipe out Earth. It wasn't fatal. Okay, so all these things, yes, they might be an inconvenience or they might not be. But in any case, none of them stopped life on Earth. None of them stopped life on Earth. So I, I really don't think that Earth is really all that special. Well, uh, Professor Brownlee goes on, in fact, on and on and on, as I found <laughs> out interviewing him. Uh, he also says that uh, microbial life could, in fact, be quite common throughout the universe, but intelligent life. Well, take a look at the dinosaurs, he says. Uh, you know, we've had life forms with uh, spinal cords and uh, nervous systems for hundreds of millions of years on the Earth, but humans... Only humans on the Earth, even on the Earth with such ideal conditions, it took hundreds of millions of years for that for humans to get off the ground. And even then, there were many times when humanity may have been wiped out. There were only a few thousand of us, uh, you know, 100,000 years ago to create the entire human race. The human race could have been wiped out many times uh, during certain bottlenecks in our evolution. So he was basically saying that intelligent life is extremely rare, even if you have microbial life being common. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, he's right in that this is a controversial area. Uh, I think even more controversial than, than the, the question of whether you can get complex life on a lot of planets. I don't think that's so con controversial myself. But just because I give you a million planets with life, right, and you let them cook for a few billion years, there is a legitimate question. What fraction of them will ever cook up something as clever as, you know, as we are? <laughs> and, and we are clever compared to the most critters around, right? Um, that's debatable, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, but in any case, I mean, you know, we don't know because we don't, we still don't understand fully how, or even partially really, how intelligence uh, evolved on Earth. What was it that, that produced intelligence on Earth? If it's uh, a mechanism that was just very rare in the sense of being accidental or contingent upon a lot of special circumstances, then maybe he's right. Maybe you got lots and lots of life out there. Maybe Captain Kirk takes the Starship Enterprise out into space and finds lots and lots of life in the galaxy, mm -hmm. but it's all stupid. Mm -hmm. okay, that's, that's one possibility. But on the other hand, all the uh, studies that have been done about how intelligence arose on Earth suggest that, well, what drove it was, 
nothing that you wouldn't expect elsewhere. And sure, it took a long time before you got this far, but you needed some, some preconditions. You needed warm-blooded animals with a high metabolic rate. You know, you, need, you needed all sorts of, of uh, sort of biological developments. And then, in the last 50 million years, which, of course, is fairly short in the history of the planet, but in the last 50 million years, a lot of species have gotten smarter. Uh, it's it, you know, obviously Homo sapiens, but, you know, and, and obviously our simian relatives, right? Chimps are pretty clever. But, you know, birds are pretty clever. Uh, even, even octopi are fairly clever. Uh, whales and dolphins are fairly clever. There, there's been a, an increase in intelligence among, you know, a handful, a couple of handfuls of species in the past 50 million years. It isn't just one species that got smarter. Now, we got smarter than they did, but, if you, you know, if you, you were to visit Earth two million years ago, uh, you would have found that the smartest things on the planet were not our simian ancestors, but some white flanked dolphins. They had the highest IQs, and uh, they didn't leave a lot of literature, but you know they, they were the smartest things around. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it does seem that intelligence is actually kind of a, a fairly natural product of evolution once you get to a certain level of complexity. This, this is controversial, but at least the indications are that intelligence is not some sort of miracle. Okay. Well, shifting gears a little bit, uh, we also had uh, Professor Dan Wertheimer from the University of California at Berkeley on our airwaves a few years ago talking about SETI at home. That is, on your home PC, you can get a chunk, a chunk of this radio data and have your PC via its screensaver uh, basically crunch some of the numbers to look for intelligence signals. Uh, What's been the progress uh, for SETI at home in the last several years? Well, Steady at Home was intended originally just to be a very short-lived project, maybe for a year or two. But it was so popular that it's, it's continued. They expected, you know, maybe 50,000 people, maybe 50,000 people, would download this free bit of software so that when they walk away from their computer, you know, it's still humming away, that it would, it would uh, process a certain amount of SETI data that it would download from the, uh, the servers at the University of California at Berkeley. Well, more than 5 million people have downloaded that software, mm-hmm. so... So that's, uh, you know, that's 100 times as many as they expected, and about a third of them use it at any given time. What they do is they distribute a little bit of the data they collect from the radio telescope down in Puerto Rico, the Arecibo radio telescope, which a lot of, a lot of listeners may have seen in the movie Contact, movie GoldenEye. You know, it's a, it's a great movie star. Now, they, they distribute about 1% or 2% of the data they collect there on the, the web for people using the screensaver. But the point is that there are so many people doing this with their home computers, that it is by far the largest computer project, the largest computer, if you will, in the world right now. And those data are looked at extraordinarily carefully. So, you know, it's really a very, very fine-tooth comb. They look at all the rest of their data right there at Berkeley using, you know, the local Berkeley computers, but they can't look as carefully as they can at this small fraction of the data, which, you know, are the prime data, if you will. Now, has anybody found something? Well, people find stuff all the time, of course. Uh, if you do these sorts of work, uh, this sort of work, and you're using a big antenna like the one in Puerto Rico, you find signals all the time. After all, you got this huge antenna. It's collect- connected to a, a receiver that has millions of channels. Of course, you pick up signals. But of course, the question is: Is that ET on the line, or is that AT and T on the line? Is it just interference from a telecommunications satellite or something like that? Now, what the guys at Berkeley do is they they look at all the signals that have been found by people using their computers at home. And they, they look for those cases where a signal has been found more than once, in fact, more than twice. If a signal has been found three different times, right, not just by three different people, that doesn't count, but by 
you know, at, at three different times. In other words, the telescope was pointing at some spot on the sky, and they find a signal. And then, you know, three months later, it comes back to that same point. Somebody else finds it again at that same frequency, at that same spot on the sky. If that, if that happens three or more times, then they say, hey, look, that's, you know, kind of interesting from a statistical point of view. That suggests it's not just a noise spike. That, you know, looks like a real signal. And then they will go down to the telescope and will deliberately look at that spot on the sky for a long period of time, for a few minutes, whatever it takes, until they can verify whether the signal is still there. They have done that on several occasions. So far, no dice. But on the other hand, it is quite possible that somebody running SETI at home could, in fact, find the signal that would entitle them to pick up a prize in Stockholm and have uh, dinner with the king. And that, of course, would be perhaps one of the pivotal events in uh, human evolution on the planet Earth. I think so. Well, let me ask you now the $64,000 question. What do you, as an individual, think N is, N being the number of intelligent uh, uh, planetary systems out there, and where are they? Yes, well, (laughs) of course, I don't know what N is either, but um, I, I tend to agree with Frank Drake, who still works here at the SETI Institute. His office is down the hall from mine. And uh, Frank is now, I guess he'll be 75 in another month or so. But he's still as active as he ever was. And uh, he's a pretty smart guy, one of the cleverest guys I've I've, I've known. And if you ask Frank, look, um, you know, this is your equation. What do you think that is? He'll say, well, I think it's probably around 10,000, which is kind of a conservative number compared to Carl Sagan, who thought it was a few million. I think Isaac Asimov thought it was uh, two-thirds of a million. You know, so uh, Frank is saying about 10,000. Well, if it's anywhere between 1,000 and, well, some bigger number, if it's more than 1,000, then that means that the nearest aliens are within, on the order of 1,000 light years, okay, to us. Now, keep in mind that if you look at the whole Milky Way galaxy, it's about 100,000 light years across. So this is, you know, only like 1% of the way across the galaxy, 1,000 light years. That's far if you're trying to drive it in your Honda, but it isn't so far for a radio telescope. If that's the case, and, and it really is, you know, it, it, it's up for grabs, obviously we don't know. But if, if that's the case, then our uh, experiments should find a signal within the next 20 years because within the next 20 years we will have kind of searched stars out to that distance. So uh, that's my bet. But on the other hand, we're not going to know the answer until we know the answer. And what are your thoughts about, well, where are they? A SETI so far has picked up nothing. Is that just a question of lack of sensitivity of the SETI antennas, lack of detectors, or is it because they're shy out there in outer space, or maybe they don't exist? Or, well, what are your thoughts about uh, why we haven't picked up any messages yet? Yeah, well, this, this, you know, I think that the answer is very simple. I think it's simply because we've, we've, we've not combed enough uh, galactic real estate yet. Uh, but, you know, there are people who say, no, 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 the fact that you haven't heard anything yet means something. It means that they're not out there because any society that was more advanced than ours, and, and most of them are going to be more advanced than ours. I mean, if intelligence really does occur on planets in, in, in a fashion that's not extraordinarily rare, then most of the societies out there will be much older than ours because, after all, you know, we're the new kids on the block. The Earth has only been here for four and a half billion years. The the galaxy has been around for like three times that length of time. So most of the stars out there are older than the sun. So if they're really advanced, then they should have been able by now to maybe colonize big chunks of the galaxy. Who knows? They should have been able to spread around. They should have, you know, remote transmitters. They should be very easy to find, right? And the fact that we haven't found them 
that sounds like some sort of paradox. In fact, this, this little argument is often called the Fermi paradox because Enrico Fermi, uh, the, the physicist, the Italian-American physicist, was the first to point this out over a lunch at, uh, I think it was Los Alamos in 1950. But in any case, uh, that's his argument. I don't think I buy into that. I don't think it's a matter of them being shy, being coy. Maybe some of them are shy. Maybe most of them are shy. But if only one society has a powerful transmitter out there, then, then we have a chance of success. I think the reason we haven't found them yet is that we haven't looked very carefully. And all of that is going to change in the next few decades, mostly because of the march of technology. Well, my personal point of view is that if there's an anthill in the country and you're walking down this country road and you bump into this anthill, uh, do you go down to the ants and say, I bring you trinkets, I bring you beads, I bring you nuclear energy and DNA technology, <laughs> or perhaps maybe you step on a few of them? Yeah, probably. I, you know, I get phone calls uh, just about every other day from people who have their own explanation of why we haven't heard anything, and it's usually because the aliens are put off by our environmental degradation and our, you know, threatening one another with war and all that sort of stuff. But indeed, I think that from their point of view, none of that matters terribly much any more than whatever wars the ants are getting into concern me. They don't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, uh, another stream of thought says that we're looking in the wrong place. Uh, For example, take a look at email. Email is compressed. Email is broken up and goes through many cities and then recombined at the other end. So if an alien civilization had even a primitive, even a primitive email system and we were eavesdropping on it, we wouldn't hear much at all. Uh, The signals would be compressed in a way that we don't understand. They'd be fragmented and redistributed and reassembled someplace else in a code we don't understand. So we could be listening in to messages that are teeming with intelligent uh, uh, things in it, but we are simply too primitive to understand it. Uh, What are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of truth in that. I don't expect that we are going to understand any of the messages, even to the point of being able to sort of break them up into the bits that uh, they, you know, that, that make them up. And it, it's also true that you know there are all sorts of methods for encoding information, for sending bits around that uh, are fairly sophisticated that, that we use. For example, your cell phone tends to use what is called spread spectrum technology, where the signal is spread all over the dial instead of being concentrated in one spot. That's very hard to find with a radio receiver unless you know all the details of their communications uh, schemes. So, yeah, there are lots and lots of ways they can make the signal hard to find, but in the end it comes down to this. If they have a transmitter on, that puts a certain amount of energy somewhere in the radio dial, somewhere in the radio spectrum. And we don't worry about how it's encoded or what the message is or anything like that. We don't worry about the message when we do our SETI experiments. We're just trying to determine is a transmitter on. We're looking for narrowband components to the signal, it's called a little, you know, lots of excess energy, if you will, at certain spots on the radio dial. If we find that, we, of course, don't know what they're saying, whether it's something profound or whether it's something trivial like used car ads. We don't care about any of that. We're simply looking for evidence that their transmitters are on because, after all, that, that's the proof that we're after. Okay, now let's talk about flying saucers. Uh, of course, the distances between stars are enormous. Uh, it would take the Voyager spacecraft thousands and thousands of years to reach the nearest star. But that's because, you know, we're kind of primitive on this scale that we're talking about. Uh, another civilization could easily be a million years ahead of us. And so the next question is, is there a law of physics preventing a civilization millions of years ahead of us from making contact with us? Is there any brick wall that prevents an advanced civilization from making contact? Well, 
Michelle, you're the physicist, and you mm-hmm. know that there isn't. There's That's no right. physics that, that prevents it. Mm-hmm. Now, there may be some physics that makes it very hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, conventional physics, uh, if you use you know rockets in the, the, the normal sense, the, the problem there is our rockets, of course, don't go fast enough. But you know they're more advanced; they can build better rockets. But when you get up to very high speeds, and you really do need speeds that are comparable to the speed of light, if you want to get from one star to the next in less than a century, which sounds to me like something you might want to do no matter who you are. Well, unfortunately, that concludes our interview with Dr. Seth Shostak, Ph.D., and one of the directors of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And by the way, if you want to know more about warp drive, about superluminal velocities, about breaking the light barrier, then you may want to get a copy of my latest book. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And it goes beyond Einstein. Einstein, of course, was the cop on the block who said you cannot go faster than the speed of light. However, we realize that there's the theory beyond Einstein, a theory that combines relativity with the quantum theory, a theory of everything. And go to my website if you want to find out more about it. The website is mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I have 5 million fans on Facebook, if you go there, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. And the latest one is, as I mentioned, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. So that's it for exploration. Tune in every week as we discuss the impact of science on society and the way we view the universe. Good day.